Well, my text for this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2. And we'll be starting at verse 1. But before we come to the Word of God, let's just come before the Lord in prayer for a moment. Gracious God, may only the truth be spoken, and may only the truth be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we enter into Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus again in the town of Capernaum. And so we're picking up where Andrew actually left off a few weeks ago. Jesus had been in Capernaum, and as we saw last week, he had caused quite a stir, right? He had garnered quite a following for himself. And so people started to crowd around Jesus. They wanted uh, their friends healed. They wanted demons cast out of people, and they wanted to listen to his teaching. And so back in uh, verse 38 of chapter 1, he says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Right? Jesus is almost saying, things are getting a bit hectic here in Capernaum. Let's start to go around the region of Galilee and preach in some different places. And so after he's been preaching in these different places in Galilee, Jesus eventually comes back to Capernaum, and it says that he goes back to his home in verse 1. It says it was reported that he was at home. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means, what Jesus' home would have been. Some people think that it might have been the home of Mary. Mary was likely widowed for quite some years. Uh, Jesus' foster father, Joseph, had probably died in the years when Jesus was a child. And so this might be Mary's home in Capernaum. Um, it also might be the case that this is the home of Peter's mother-in-law. It could have been the case that Jesus kind of set up a home base in Peter's house. And from that home base, he ministered uh, to the surrounding regions. But at the end of the day, doesn't particularly matter. He's in a home, and this home of his is kind of a home base. And like has been going on, uh, people have started to flock to Jesus. And this house is just chalk filled with people, right? This house kind of feels chalk filled with people. Um, but I imagine Jesus's house was a lot more full. Um, and people had come to hear the teaching of Jesus. They had come to be healed by Jesus. And they had come to have demons cast out of them. And so on this day, four men pick up their friend who's been paralyzed for a long time. And they bring him to Jesus thinking that Jesus is going to heal their friend. But when they get to Jesus' home, as I've said, it's chalk-filled with people. And they say, oh, no. And you can imagine themselves you know, trying to wiggle themselves in, trying to get to the front of the crowd, but they can't do it. They can't do it. And if you want to call to mind a situation similar to this, all you have to do is imagine a busy emergency room at any Canadian hospital. right? Imagine you have a broken arm and you're in a lot of pain and you think to yourself, oh, I need to go to the emergency room to get this fixed. And you walk in, and you walk up to the nurse, who's usually quite nice. But the nurse says to you, sorry, you're going to have to wait. And so you sit in this busy waiting room thinking, when am I going to get to see a doctor? When am I finally going to get healed? When is somebody going to finally help me? And you look around, and everybody else is in a bad situation too. You know, that little boy has a cut on his head, and that little girl has a horrible earache, and that old lady has just fallen down. And you think, this is just horrible. I wish I could just go and see a doctor. But in this story, um, the four men who have brought this paralyzed man to be healed 
aren't daunted by the busy waiting room. They aren't daunted by the busy house that Jesus is teaching them. And so they start to innovate. They start to think to themselves, how do we get to the front of the line? How do we cut through all this bureaucracy? How do we cut through all these people and get our guy to see the Lord Jesus? And so eventually they decide, we'll go down through the roof. And so they walk up on top of the house and they start to go down through the roof. Now, so you can get an idea of what this would have looked like in your minds, most homes in first century Palestine, first century Galilee, uh, were kind of square and they would have had a flat roof. And that roof would have been built out of thatch, which is like reeds, right? You would have had cross beams and then you would have piled reeds on top of that. And then you would have packed mud on top of that and would have made almost like a cement, right? A hard, a really hard substance. And that would have kept the rain out and would have kept the sun out. And so as these four men are going down through the roof, I don't quite know how they did it, but first they would have had to hammer through this thick level of mud. And then they would have had to clear away the reeds. And so as Jesus is teaching, you can imagine that little chunks of mud would have been falling down into the house and you would have heard... You know, as they're hacking away, and eventually, you know, the thatch would have been pulled back, and the sun would have poured down into the room, and then a guy who <laughs> couldn't walk would have been lowered down into the middle of the house. And so we see that these four men have great faith. They have a deep and abiding sense that if they get their friend in front of the Lord Jesus, Jesus is going to heal them. Right? These guys aren't going to be daunted. These guys aren't going to be turned away from their task. They're going to do whatever it takes to get their friend down in front of the Lord Jesus. And so they've done it. This man is down in front of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says to them, he says, sorry, the Bible says, Mark says that Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And so what I want us to notice at this point is on the one hand, Jesus always commends faith. Jesus always encourages faith. But on the other hand, sometimes Jesus corrects faith. Sometimes Jesus has to correct the faith that people have in him. And so before we go on any further, let's just talk about what faith is. When I use this word faith, I'm using a word that Christians like to use a lot. But what actually is faith? Faith, in this situation, can basically be boiled down to the word trust. To have faith in something means to trust in something. And so when Mark says that these men had faith, he's saying that they trusted Jesus. Now, what we're not sure of is that exactly what these four men trusted about Jesus. It's obvious that they trusted that Jesus was a healer. They had faith that Jesus could heal their friend. But we're also told in the scripture that Jesus had been going around uh, the area of Galilee preaching the gospel, right? Preaching the good news, saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. So it might have been that these four men had actually heard some of the teaching of Jesus, but we don't know that for sure. But we do know for sure that they trust that Jesus can heal their friend, right? And so that's obvious in the text. They trust that Jesus can heal their friend. And so whenever Jesus sees trust, whenever Jesus sees faith, he wants to encourage it, right? He wants to commend it. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. There's a story in Mark 5, where a woman has a medical problem where, which she's been struggling with for years and years and years. And she's so nervous to come before the Lord Jesus that she kind of crawls down on her knees through the crowd and, crowd and reaches out in faith, thinking, if only I touch his clothing, 
I think that'll heal me. And sure enough, just touching Jesus's clothing heals her. But Jesus doesn't want to leave it at that, right? Jesus wants to draw her out and to say to her, your faith has made you well. Your faith is a good thing. Your trust is a good thing. And so he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease, right? Jesus doesn't just want to heal this woman. He wants to encourage her faith. And then we see in Luke 17, verse 19, uh, the healing of the 10 lepers. Uh, Andrew mentioned that story a few weeks ago. There's 10 lepers walking along the way, and Jesus heals them all. He tells them to go to the priest, um, but only one of them turns back to thank the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus says to this one man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Or in another instance, Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who um, is grieved and upset by her sin. She knows herself to be a sinner. And she knows herself to be in need of forgiveness. And so she finds Jesus as he's eating supper and he, and he washes his feet with her hair. And the kind of uptight Pharisees say, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this to the Lord Jesus? But the Lord Jesus, after telling a beautiful story, says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so Jesus is always trying to encourage faith, right? You could almost say that faith is the name of the game. Jesus comes into the world so that people can trust him, right? Jesus comes into the world so that people can get to know who he is and trust him. But we also see that sometimes Jesus needs to correct faith, right? These four men lower their friend into the building. And it might be the case that all they know about Jesus is that he's a healer. All they trust about Jesus is that he's a healer. And so when Jesus says to this paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. In a sense, he's correcting their faith, right? Jesus is saying, my dear friends, not only am I a healer, but I also have power to forgive sin. And so you should not only trust me as someone who can heal you physically, but you should trust me as someone who can heal your soul. You should trust me as someone who can forgive sin. Now, it's hard to know what the paralytic thought because we're not given the reaction of the paralytic. I'm sure he thought, Maybe, well, that's well and good. My sins are forgiven, but I still can't walk. (laughs) I still can't get up and walk away. But Jesus is trying to make a point, right? You have come to me trusting that I can give you physical healing, but I want you to know that I can forgive your sins. And so often in our Christian walk, we need our faith corrected. We need to learn to trust the Lord Jesus in deeper and more profound ways. Right. Sometimes we come to the Lord Jesus and we say, Jesus, I've been reading your word and it's obvious to me that you're a great moral teacher. It's obvious to me that you're a great moral teacher. And so I'm going to read the Sermon on the Mount every day and I'm going to try as good as I can to be a good person because I believe you're a good moral teacher. And you can imagine Jesus saying to that person through the word, well, Jack, that's well and good. I am a great moral teacher. The Sermon on the Mount is pretty much the best sermon that's ever been preached. But I'm not only a great moral teacher. I'm also the savior of mankind. You could imagine an artist reading through the Bible and saying, wow, these are the greatest stories ever told. I'm going to paint the most beautiful pictures of this man called Jesus. And they're going to be really famous. And they're going to put them on the top of cathedrals. And people are going to flock from near and far to see these beautiful pictures. And you can imagine Jesus saying through the word, you're right, 
I am a great object. I'm a great subject for art, but I'm not just that. I'm also the savior of the world. And so if all you see is my beauty, then you haven't seen the full picture. You haven't seen who I truly am, which is the son of God, the savior of the world. And so we see here that Jesus always commends faith. He always encourages faith. And I think it's beautiful because we see it all throughout the Bible. If people come to the Lord Jesus with an open heart, if people come to the Lord Jesus with trust and faith, Jesus never turns them away, right? Jesus never says, nope, too bad. You don't get to trust in me, right? He always encourages faith, but sometimes he has to correct faith, right? Sometimes he has to reveal a little bit more of who he actually is. You can imagine coming into the doctor's office and saying, Doc, I've got a horrible cough and all I need is some prescription strength lozenges, right? I know what it is. It's just a bad cough and all I need is some lozenges. And the doctor says, well, okay, but maybe we should look at you, right? Maybe we should make sure that nothing worse is going on. So the doctor takes out his stethoscope and he listens to your lungs and he says, I think this is a bit worse than a bad cough. And I think you're going to need a little bit more than just some lozenges. So they do a few more tests and he says, you've got tuberculosis. You're going to die of consumption. You know, this isn't just a bad cough. You've got a horrible life-threatening disease. Right? That's kind of like the story we've just read. Right? These four friends bring this paralyzed man to Jesus and say, all he needs is to walk again. Can you make him walk again? And Jesus says, you've got a much worse disease than paralysis. Your sins are not yet forgiven. Right? Your sins are against you. And you need to be healed of them. You need to be relieved of your sins. And so you come just wanting to walk again, which, hey, that's a good thing. But I also want to deal with the deeper issue, the more profound issue, which is your sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does. With a few simple words, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then we're not actually told how the paralyzed man reacts, but we are told how the scribes react. The Bible says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so these scribes are, in a way, uh, skeptics par excellence. Right? These scribes are skeptical about what Jesus is doing. Now, on the one hand, I want to cut the scribes a bit of slack, because they're right. Only God can forgive sin. Right? These scribes were smart fellows, and they knew their Bible, and they knew that sin, any sin, is an infinite offense, committed against an infinite God, and therefore only God can forgive sin. And they knew that God had given them the sacrificial system, and that was the only God-ordained system by which sin could be forgiven. Right? And so these scribes are in one sense right. Only God can forgive sin. Right? Only God can forgive sin. But the thing that they hadn't accounted for is that God would show up in the flesh in Galilee. Last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus tends to burst categories, right? Jesus defies people's expectations. And so these scribes had not expected the incarnate Son of God to show up in Galilee and forgive sin, right? And so on the one hand, they're right. But on the other hand, their mistake, their issue, is that they're not coming to terms with the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And now they say a word here. They say, he is blaspheming. And I just want to be clear about what blasphemy actually is. 
Blasphemy is when you attribute something to God that is not of God, or when you attribute to a person something that is of God but not of that person. Right? So if I got up here and I said, I'm God, I'd be blaspheming. And if I got up here and said, God is Colton Carrick, then I'd be blaspheming. Those are not true statements. And they obscure their lies. They're lies about God. And so these scribes think that Jesus is lying about God. They think that he's lying about the things of God. And Jesus, because he's God, knows exactly what they're thinking. Right? We see this in verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so Jesus, as he often does, challenges the question of his questioners by asking them another question. Right? So Jesus says, Scribes, I know that you're questioning me in your hearts. I know that you think I'm a blasphemer. I know that you think that I can't forgive sins. And so let me ask you this question. What's easier, to forgive sin or to say to this man, get up and walk? That's an interesting question. Right? We should think about it. What's easier, to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, if we think about it in a technical sense, it's far more difficult to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk. Like I said a little bit earlier, if sin is an infinite offense against an infinite God, then no average Joe can just say to somebody your sins are forgiven. I mean, they can say the words, but they can't actually affect the reality. They can't actually forgive the sins of the person. Right? It's a, as audacious as, you know, imagine Asher walks into a prison, and he says, I forgive the sins of all of these people. <laughs> walks out. Even though he says this, it's not going to happen. Right? It requires God and God alone. And so in a technical sense, it's far harder to forgive sin than it is to say to a man, get up and walk. Right? That being said, it's very difficult to verify that someone's sins have actually been forgiven. Right? When Jesus says your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, his sins are indeed forgiven. When God says so, it happens. But the scribes can't see any physical difference in the man, right? And so Jesus does the easier thing to verify that he can do the harder thing, right? And so he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And sure enough, the paralytic rises up. He immediately picks up his bed. And he went out before all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And so part of Jesus' intent in this interaction is to reveal who he is. One of the words that we see in this sentence is the word authority. And the word authority is a word that pops up often in the early chapters of Mark. It's the Greek word exousia. And Jesus is saying, not only do I have the authority to heal, but I also have the authority to forgive sin. Right? And so Jesus is revealing his authority in the world. He's showing people that he has that authority. And what's interesting is that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, there's lots of different titles which are given to Jesus throughout the Bible. You know, sometimes he's called the Son of God. We saw that in Mark verse, chapter 1, verse 1. 
Sometimes he's called Lord. Sometimes he's called Master. Sometimes he's called Teacher, Rabbi. But Jesus' favorite thing to call himself is the Son of Man. Often when Jesus refers to himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. And the question is, what does this word mean? What does this title mean? What does Son of Man mean? Now, sometimes in the Bible, Son of Man simply means that you're a human being. Right? Particularly in the book of Ezekiel, when God is talking to Ezekiel, the prophet, he calls him, O Son of Man. And what he means by that is simply, like every one of us, you had a mom and you're a dad and you're a person. But there's also a more significant way that the name Son of Man is used. And we find that in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the book of Daniel, we see that the Son of Man is not just an average human being, but a key figure within the plan of God, a key figure who's going to come into the world. And when that, when that Son of Man comes into the world, he's going to be given all dominion, all authority, all power. Right? And so Jesus is referencing this, this title from the book of Daniel and saying, that's me. I'm the son of man. I'm the one coming into the world, establishing a new kingdom. And I have the very authority of God. And so Jesus is proving it in a small way. He's saying, so that you may know that I am who I am saying that I am, I'm going to heal this man and tell him to get up and walk. Now, as is often the case, we're not exactly told how the people react, but we see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark that the the scribes continue to react badly to Jesus, right? They don't believe him when he says that he has authority to do these things. But the question for us, as we read through this story, is that do we believe that Jesus has the authority to do these things? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? I want to draw you to two moments when Jesus is speaking. The first moment is in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I think those five words are some of the most beautiful in the entire Bible. Son, your sins are forgiven. Those words are words which are custom made to relieve a burden. Those five words are words designed to set somebody free. Those five words are designed to take a great weight off of the back of this man. Right? Those words are designed to remove the guilt and the shame that that man has been feeling for his entire life. My deep prayer is that you will hear those words spoken to you by the Lord Jesus. You know, I'm not just a teacher, I'm a preacher. Teachers give information. Preachers give information too, but preachers want that information to resonate deeply within the heart of the people that they're talking to. My prayer is that in your own way, you'll hear the Lord say to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Son, daughter, I have wiped away your sin. 
Though your sins were as crimson, I've made them as white as snow. They're gone. They're dealt with. And the reason Jesus can say that is on the one hand, because he's God. And on the other hand, because he was the one who went to the cross of Calvary and died for your sin. I just think those are beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful words because they're so simple. Right? And one of the most important, I mean, the place where God speaks to his people is in his Bible. Right? In his word. And so my hope is that as you're reading those words, you say to yourself, if Jesus can forgive the sins of this paralyzed man, surely he can forgive mine. And surely he can do it with a simple word. And then the second phrase of Jesus that I want to draw you towards is when he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus entered the world. Jesus came into space and time to reveal to the world who he was, to reveal himself as the son of God who who could forgive sin. And so as Christian people, we need to reckon with the gospel gospel narratives and ask on the one hand, did it actually happen? And ask on the other hand, is Jesus really who he says he is? Right. The whole reason that Mark wrote his gospel is so that people could know who Jesus was and believe in him as the son of God who could forgive sin. And so as we continue to read through the gospel of Mark, Jesus will prove himself over and over and over again. Jesus will prove himself to have authority over thing after thing after thing after thing. We should be encouraged by the fact that all of these stories are written based upon the firsthand witness of the people who actually saw these things happen. That's the question that we have. Do we believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has the authority to forgive our sins? And if so, we should go to him and we should ask him to forgive us of our sins. So as I said earlier, he never turns away those who come in faith. He never turns away those who come to him trusting in him and asking for the thing that he delights to give. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the son of God. You are the son of man. You are the visible image of the invisible God. You are God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And as God, you have the authority to forgive sin. You have the authority to forgive our sin. And so, Father, I praise you for those of us who have come before you already and who have been cleansed of our sins, who have been justified, declared righteous in your sight. But, Father, even after we're... Even after we're saved, we keep on sinning. And we have to come to you time and time again to ask for forgiveness. And I just pray that when we come to you, when we come to you seeking forgiveness, that we'll hear those sweet words which you spoke to that paralyzed man all those years ago. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And I pray that when we hear that, we'll believe it and know it to be true deep within our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.